And then gradually, they began to show themselves. I would see them going out the door, loaded down with all kinds of stuff. And that the person wearing the hood and the cloak was an old, old man with deep sunken eyes. We love stories! It's time for the apple seed, filled with stories for you and your family. All kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers. Since 2013, we've been bringing you tall tales and fairy tales and folk tales and personal and family tales and more. And today's episode is as sweet as warm cookies and as thrilling as an escape from death. We're going to start off with a heartwarming tale called The Bakery Imps by Steve Sandfield, full of mischief and mystery. And then we'll enjoy an entry in the Radio Family Journal about the Sadie Hawkins dance and a conversation with with our pal Rod Gustafson about a favorite film. We'll hear Simon Brooks with a story called Death in a Nut, just as thrilling and just as cheeky as it sounds. But the fun doesn't stop there because we'll hear Barbara Schutzgruber's The Bride. And you'll wrap up with The Barnyard Birds, a story by Tim Lowry, in which all the birds in the barnyard must find a way to defend themselves from the fearsome wildcat. It's all coming up. But to introduce us to the first story that we're going to hear today, I'm pleased to be joined in the studio by one of our assistants producers, Alyssa Mingorance. Alyssa, it's great to have you with me. Yeah, absolutely. I'm really excited for the story that we have today. (laughs) This is a story from Steve Sanfield, who is responsible for the starting up of a storytelling festival in the mountains of California, one of the most renowned storytelling festivals in the country. And, uh, And let's hear about this story, shall we? Yeah, absolutely. So this story is about a man who runs a bakery. He loves it. He's very good at it. But these pesky bakery imps keep coming in every night and messing things up. You know, um, bakery imps. Yes. I love it already. <laughs> yeah, but you know, fear not, because he gets some advice on how to handle these little pesky imps. <laughs> Steve Sandfield with the bakery imps here on the Appleseed. I must have been six, seven years old when I first heard about the bakery imps. My grandfather used to come to our house every Tuesday evening for dinner, or it was supper as we called it then. And every time he would come, he would bring me a bag of freshly baked moon cookies from his bakery. I don't know if any of you know what moon cookies are. They were round, soft cookies covered with hundreds, maybe thousands of tiny poppy seeds. And oh, I love those cookies. And if I exerted a little discipline, I could make them last two, maybe even three days. But one Tuesday evening, my grandfather arrived without my cookies. And having become accustomed to them, I blurted out, where's my cookies, Sadie? Well, he paused for a moment in a tone much more solemn than his usual tone. He said, well, Stevela, which was his name for me, well, Stevela, I put aside a bag of the best of them. But when I went to get them, they were gone. I guess the imps must have taken them. Well, my parents didn't say anything, and neither did I. I just accepted it, just as I accepted everything else my grandfather told me. But when a month or two later, he came again empty-handed and told me again that the imps had taken them, I demanded to know what imps. Not that I was unfamiliar with imps or even demons, because my grandfather had been telling me about them from years, all the way from imps who were no more than troublesome practical jokers to Asmodeus, the king of the demons himself. But this was different because now they were beginning to affect my life. I mean, here I was without my precious cookies. 
And so my grandfather took me by the hand and he took me into the living room. We sat down on the couch and he said, Stevela, I'll tell you about them. When I was a young man in Vilna, I apprenticed myself to Shlomo the baker. There was no finer baker in the entire city and everything I know, I learned from him. And after a while, he came to trust me completely, so much so that many were the nights that I found myself alone in the bakery getting ready for the next day. And then one night, these two characters appeared as if out of nowhere. They were small, smaller than you, but they were looked like grown men with full beards, but smaller than children. And I was astonished. I asked, where did you come from? Uh, who are you? And one of them in a squeaky voice said, Who are we? Who are we? We are who we are. <laughs> I asked them again, well, what do you want? He said, we come for the bread. We come for the bread. Well, I told them the bakery wasn't open yet, but if they needed a loaf of bread, I would sell them a loaf. Well, that seemed to be the funniest thing they'd ever heard because they began to giggle and laugh and they said, a loaf, a loaf, a loaf is for people. We want 20 loaves. 20 loaves, what could they want for, with 20 loaves? I told them, that's all I had baked. Besides, it would cost a lot of money. And when I said that, they both went on, money, money, money is for fools. We never use money, we just want the bread. Well, I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what to do, so I didn't do anything. And then one of those little characters began to take the bread off the rack and stuff it under his arm. Well, I had to do something. I mean, Shlomo trusted me. It was my responsibility, so I started to grab the bread back from, from him. But then the other one started to stuff bread under his arm, and I grabbed it back for him, and we went on for what seemed like an eternity. Them grabbing, me grabbing back, them grabbing, me grabbing back, until finally I was so exhausted, all I could do is lean against the wall. And I watched those two characters go out the back door of the bakery, the arms stuffed with bread singing, money, money, money is for fools. Well, of course, when Shlomo came in the next morning, I told him about this, the first thing, and he slapped his head. He said, oy vey. I should have told you about them. They come. They come every once in a while, sometimes every week. Sometimes I don't see them for months, but I always let them take what they want. My father, said Shlomo, told me they were imps, and it's just better to give them whatever they want. I don't know what you've done. You've probably done something terrible here. I don't know what will happen. That's what Shlomo said. Well, my grandfather continued, actually nothing happened, at least not while I was there in Vilna, and that was at least for two years. That's when I came to America. I worked in various bakeries, saved some money, and got my own bakery. And that's when I began to see them again. Actually, I didn't see them at first, but I didn't have to see them to know that they had followed me across the ocean. Because all these strange things would happen in my bakery. I'd be out front with a customer, and there'd be this crash from the back room. I'd run back, and there'd be rolls all over the floor. Or some nights when I was boiling the bagels in that big copper pot, the fire would go out under the bagels. Or if I'd bake a special cake for a bar mitzvah or a wedding, it would vanish, poof, just like that. So I didn't have to see them to know that they were with me. And then gradually, they began to show themselves. 
I would see them going out the door loaded down with all kinds of stuff, and I would always hear them singing that song, money, money, money is for fools. But you know, they never spoke to me, and they've never approached me, and Steve, I guess that's what happened to your moon cookies. Well, it seemed perfectly natural to me that there should be imps in my grandfather's bakery. I mean, I did not question any of the stories he told me, and so why should I question this one? Unfortunately, they never came up again, the imps, because from that day on, every time my grandfather came to supper, he brought me a bag of moon cookies. And even after he retired from baking and took to selling those little white labels that used to appear on loaves of rye and pumpernickel and chali that proclaimed not only was this bread kosher, it was union made as well. <laughs> even then, he would always bring me my bag of moon cookies. Well, the years passed and I grew up, barely grew up. And once I was home from college and I went to visit my grandfather who was living uh, with an uncle of mine. And on my way, on my way to his, to visit him, I passed a Jewish bakery and something made me stop. I went into the bakery and they were all the sights and smells of my childhood that I knew so well, the rolls and the pastries. And there in a case was a tray of moon cookies. I bought a baker's dozen to bring as a gift to my grandfather. And as we were sitting at the kitchen table, nibbling on the moon cookies, having our tea, his in a glass, mine in a cup, I said, Zadie, whatever happened to the imps in your bakery? Ah, a twinkle came to his eye. I said, Stevela, you remember, huh? Well, they kept their tricks up for years. And I just accepted them. I mean, who am I to question mysteries that I don't understand? But once, once it was when my helper was in the hospital for some kind of operation or other, and I had to do everything alone, they began to come every night. I thought they would drive me crazy. They'd knock over this and that. They'd open the oven in the middle of baking. They'd spoil the dough. And of course, they were always singing that song, money, money, money is for fools. Well, I thought, enough is enough. And one night, as they were going out the back door, I screamed at them, why? Why do you torment me so? What I did, I did years ago. I was a young man. I didn't know any better. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And with that, they dropped all the goods. And they sang, sorry, sorry, the fool says he's sorry. And then they approached me for the first time since that night in Vilna and spoke to me. They told me I had made a terrible mistake back there in Vilna, that imps don't ask for very much. And whatever they ask for, they should be given. They told me that we humans are not alone in the world, that there are all kinds of creatures and forms, all with their own place and their own purpose. And it's not always given to us as human beings to understand what that purpose is. For us to try to control all of that is pure foolishness. The simple pride of people, they called it. Well, they talked, and I listened. And when they finished, I told them I was sorry again, that they were welcome to come anytime and take whatever they wanted. I even told them, if you want me to bake you special treats, I'll do it freely. And you know something? My grandfather laughed. That was the last time I ever saw those imps. <laughs> The bakery imps, 
by Steve Sandfield. And I've been listening to it not only with you, but with Alyssa Mingorance, one of our assistant producers. Alyssa, bakery imps. Yes. Where can you go wrong, right? right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think the part that sticks out to me a lot is in the beginning when he's talking about the cookies that his grandfather would make and have and these things. And just you can feel the affection in his voice, right, for (laughs) both his grandfather and the memories of the cookies and just all of it, right? You can tell it's just gushing out of him. And um, one of my grandmothers is from Brazil, and so Mm. I didn't get to see her a lot growing up. Um, But I do have this one memory of her that uh, is very, very strong in my mind, and it was when we were making a cake together. And I remember it was like a very simple cake, but it seemed so magical because it was only like three or four ingredients, but it was like pink and fluffy. And it was it was (laughs) honestly magical to like my little 10 year old brain. And I remember she let me uh, she used sweetened condensed milk. And after she used it, she let me get a spoon and like clean up the rest of the can and all those kinds of things. And uh, I think I feel the way about that memory, as we could tell Steve Sandfield feels about his grandfather. Food memories can be important doorways into stories, you know, and and, and into understanding between people, too. I I remember I didn't know my sister-in-law very well. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I knew that she and her family owned and operated a Mexican restaurant. Very cool. And uh, we went camping together, uh, my family and my brother's family. And 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 she made, uh, she, I remember her bringing chilies and, mm. and roasting them over the fire and making food for us all out of those oh. chilies. And I will never, ever forget that, not only because the food was delicious, but because it gave us an opportunity to kind of get into each other's space a little bit. And, Absolutely. And I got to know my sister-in-law, Vanessa. That's so, so cool. Well, we all got to eat, right? right. And we all got to eat. great excuse to get together. <laughs> <laughs> well, a delight to hear a Steve Sandfield story. Thanks for bringing it to us, Alyssa. Absolutely. I love it. A lot more coming up on The Appleseed. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you on today's episode of The Appleseed. If you're just joining us, a moment ago we heard a story from Steve Sandfield called The Bakery Imps. We hope you enjoyed that story just as much as you might enjoy some warm cookies. Up in just a little bit here, we're going to hear a story called Death in a Nut, a story by Simon Brooks, an old tale made new by a great teller. But first, because we know that the sharing of memories can sometimes be the spark that ignites a story for you that you can share with the people that you love. Here's a memory of mine, a memory about the Sadie Hawkins dance. It's today's entry in the Radio Family Journal. The Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it. On the Appleseed. A big neighborhood dance came and went this weekend for all the teenagers in my neck of the woods. All the kids for blocks and blocks went to it, and the grown-ups stayed home and watched TV, even me. But watching all the kids in the neighborhood head for the dance, I was awash in a memory. It's the memory of the Sadie Hawkins dance when I was a sophomore in high school. 
And my date to the Sadie Hawkins dance was Jennifer Free, who lived in the next town over, grew up to marry Raymond Roberts and raise a crop of grinning, red-headed kids. Well, anyway, I met Jen during rehearsals for a community production of West Side Story. She played the third shark girl from the left, and I played some equally obscure jet. We did a lot of hanging out, mostly in big companies of good friends over lots of pizza. And by the time Sadie Hawkins rolled around, we'd been pals for years. As I look back on it now, it's actually a little embarrassing that we tried to bundle our comfortable friendship into the complicated social package of a date dance. You were probably better than I was at this. But high school dances, whatever else they were about, seemed always to wind up being about strategy. They were dominated by the careful and unspoken negotiation of dancing just the right distance from each other, or the trick of striking the optimally functional balance of eagerness and nonchalance in conversation, the strategy of carefully engineering the things you were going to wear, an outfit that didn't look carefully engineered but really was engineered to within an inch of its life, of reacting with the precise degree of enthusiasm for certain songs and the precise degree of cool disdain for others. It was murder, to say nothing of fumbling through the nightmarish seconds at the doorstep. I mean, how odd that Jen and I should inflict all that upon each other. All part of the education, I suppose, and our friendship survived it. But of the whole experience, the moment I remember best of all happened after the dance, when Jen was home safely at her house and I at mine. I heard quiet laughter and footsteps on the porch. I mean, it was a million o'clock, but I opened the door to find my buddies, Dave and Dan, standing in the cold autumn midnight with a couple of pizzas. And for me, the whole world, which had been holding its breath all evening, breathed a long, relieved sigh. I mean, my parents, who had surely been at the alert with an eye on the clock since Jen and I pulled away, settled into sleep. My friends and I kicked off our shoes and, without a thought of who might have holes in their socks, ate a bunch of pizza together. The pizzas disappeared without a single notion as to who was eating too fast or too slowly or laughing too loud or whether the pizza was from the right place or had the right stuff on it. I mean, I changed out of my Sadie Hawkins duds and into clothes that didn't look so carefully engineered because they weren't actually engineered. And maybe Jenny did the same at her place. I hope so. I ought to say that I liked high school dances. I met and became acquainted with a lot of terrific people in that arena. Those dances became the laboratory where I learned to treat people with respect. Somewhere in a box, I've got stacks of old dance photos, Some of them show me standing in groups of kids I've seldom seen again. Others show me standing with friends who have remained dear to this day. I don't look terribly comfortable in a single one of those photos, if you want to know. And though I don't have as many photos of midnight pizza adventures, I got a brain full of vivid memories of them and a heart full of thankfulness for the blessing for the safety, for the fun, even sometimes the sweet rescue of good friends. The Radio Family Journal of Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it, on the Appleseed.
Thanks for joining me for that entry in the Radio Family Journal. A little while from now, you're going to hear a story from Tim Lowry, a story called The Barnyard Birds, about how all the birds in the barnyard have to find a way to defend themselves from the fearsome wild cat. But first, how about a conversation with a friend? Stories come into our lives in so many ways. From families passing them along, telling to telling, from the pages of great books, from radio and podcasts, through songs, and of course on screen too. And we're exploring all of the ways that great stories get into our hearts and minds. That's just one of the things we love here on The Appleseed. I'm joined by Rod Gustafson, a longtime member of our BYU radio family and an even longer time movie lover, having watched and reviewed thousands of movies for families over many years. Rod, such a pleasure to have you on the Apples. Thank you, Sam. Good to be here again. You know, I asked Rod a question, and the question is a question that you might want to think about with the people that you love. And the question is, what's one movie that you think every family should see? Hmm. And I have such a hard time with that because I have a long list of movies that I, <laughs> I think every family should see. This one, though, this one's a little more serious. Yeah. And I would say, you know, for maybe the 10 and overcrowd and parents, I always say, watch movies with your kids. Yeah. Enjoy it together. But this one especially. And this one is Shadowlands. Mm -hmm. This is a story, if you recall, of uh, involving C.S. Lewis and uh, a romance that he had. Um, Anthony Hopkins. Yes, yeah, Anthony Hopkins playing C.S. Right? Lewis. And this is my favorite Anthony. Anthony Hopkins film. Mm. And Shadowlands taught me something. I, I, I'm going to move out of the movie for a moment and yeah. tell you a little bit about, this is one of my inner, one of my inner problems, Sam. When, <laughs> when our children were younger, we have four kids, my wife Donna and I, and they wanted a pet. Kids yeah. always want pets. I really didn't want to get a pet. I mean, first of all, I've got some allergies and, you know, I knew it was just going to be you know, more work. You don't yeah. want more work when you got four little kids. But the real reason, I hate to confess this, but here it is, the public confession. I have a bad habit of always thinking about the end mm. rather than the beginning. I'm thinking in my head, no matter what pet we get, I'm going to have to go through the death yeah. scene. And my kids are going to have to go through that. And it's not, I mean, I'm going to be sad that the pet dies, but what I'm really going to be sad about is my kids having to go through this. Working through that with your kids. E working yeah. through that with your kids, which I started feeling like, why do I feel this way? And I, and then I started thinking, well, maybe we should get a parrot. I hear some of them live 80 years. <laughs> I'll be gone. <laughs> I won't have to worry about it. But no, the kids didn't want a parrot. Yeah. So finally, accounting for allergies and everything else, my wife and I go to the animal shelter and we come home with a couple of guinea pigs. Mm. So when we bring them home in this box and we unveil the box, and I'll never forget my kids looking at these guinea pigs like they were just on fire. <laughs> this was so exciting. And of course, one of the guinea pigs only lived a couple of years yeah. and died on a very, very busy day that was very traumatic for my oldest son who had some, he had a test at school, you know, in sixth grade or whatever, but it felt like it was a big deal. Yeah. And, and then the other one eventually died while I was at a, um, well, I was at a film critics thing in Los Angeles. I'm sitting on the beach yeah. and my poor wife's back home in Canada handling this. Anyhow, the reason that Shadowlands is an important movie to me is it has a great message about the joy that comes from the risk of loving someone yeah. or loving something. But in this case of loving my children and 
who am I to want to rob them of the joy of having a pet because I'm worried about, you know, what's going sure. to happen? And as Anthony Hopkins in this movie goes through this this romance with a woman, her name was Joy. Yeah. And the movie really sets it up. And by the way, there's a lot of inaccuracies in this movie that the true C.S. Lewis diehard fans are going to say, well, why did they do that? But the point is... <laughs> as so with, many movies As are, so right? many it's, movies they, do. It's a movie. Yes. Right? But yeah. the point is within the movie, it does just a spectacular job of showing the C, of C.S. Lewis working through this, of letting a person into his life that he's loved so dearly and then... You know, in, in reality, I think it was three years later in the movie, it's months later, yeah. she gets diagnosed with terminal cancer. Yeah. And then he has to go through the loss and what he learns from taking this risk of loving and and what comes, the joy that comes with the pain. It's handled Fantastic so beautifully, film. so intelligently, mm-hmm. so gently. Yes. That it's yeah. a good way to get into some of those topics. It is. Uh, with people sort of across... Mm-hmm. ages mm-hmm. right it is it yeah. really is and it's a very gentle film with beautiful cinematography by the way it released on blu-ray yeah. recently and uh, it looks great deborah winger and deborah as winger, joy gresham yes, yeah. is joy yeah and <laughs> and it really does it really does open it's a great discussion film if you watch it with your kids about about that important topic that yeah. unfortunately it's part of mortality that we're going to face face but i think in my opinion it is one of the best message movies for covering that type of, yeah. uh, for covering that discussion. And I think, yeah, again, older children, I think, could really benefit from that. Kids who love the Narnia books or other writings of C.S. Mm-hmm. Lewis. We'll and they can learn more about him. Sure, yeah. Yes. We'll, we'll find a kind of biographical, the ba- biographical background behind the, yes. behind the, the, the yes. author of some and of those favorites. And there's a couple of little hints about Narnia in there sure. because Joy's son comes. She only has one son in the movie. Yeah. And the, the first thing he walks into C.S. Lewis's house, he wants to see the wardrobe, oh, yeah. of course. Of course. So, <laughs> which is a really cute scene. And Yeah. 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 There's a beautiful book, uh, published uh, posthumously after C.S. Lewis passed on, a book called A Grief a Observed. Grief. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Which is, of course, Bought his, that for my wife for her birthday a few years back. Yeah. His yeah. thoughts uh, subsequent to the passing mm-hmm. of, well, mm-hmm. uh, uh, a lot of his thoughts as she was ill yes. passing on. Yes. But then, of course, his his grief in journals and letters and things like the that. The only thing I don't like about this movie is that he questions God more in the movie than in reality. Yeah. If you read his writings... His faith is strong and is restored even after going through this loss, but still a very beautiful film. Well, a lovely film, and what a nice answer to the question, what's a movie that every family should see? Shadowlands (laughs) is available. Well, again, we live in an era where movies are easier than ever to find and access. And it's finally, it was really difficult to get for years. It was out of print, but now most of the streaming platforms have it. Yeah. Well, Rod Gustafson, thank you so much for joining us here on The Appleseed. It was a wonderful opportunity. Great stories do come into our lives in so many ways. Such a pleasure to chat about Shadowlands, a film of which I'm pretty fond too, and Rod Gustafson to tell us about it. We'll be sure to have him back. There's a lot more coming up. You're going to hear a story from Simon Brooks called Death in a Nut. You'll hear Barbara Schutzgruber with The Bride and The Barnyard Birds from South Carolina storyteller Tim Lowry. All of it is stuff you're going to want to hear. Stick around. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. 
Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. Such a pleasure to be with you on today's episode of The Appleseed. If you're just joining us, a moment ago we heard a conversation with Rod Gustafson about the film Shadowlands, chronicling just a portion of the life of the great writer C.S. Lewis. And up next, we're going to hear a story from Simon Brooks. This is a story called Death in a Nut. It's a story about the love between a mother and her son, accepting difficulties in life, and of course, a little bit of mischief, too. Here's Death in a Nut by Simon Brooks. Morning, Mom. Here's your cup of tea. Toby always made his mother a cup of tea first thing in the morning, and then they would get up and go downstairs and have breakfast together, before going on with the rest of the day. They lived in a humble home not too far from the beach on the seashore. Toby loved the beach. He loved everything about it, the sound of the waves against the stones. He loved finding driftwood, and he'd bring some of that home for his mother, or the strange glass balls that would be washed up after a storm. Well, the years went by, and Toby's mother grew older and more frail. Her fingers began to get stiff, her hair became white, her back bent. And one morning, when Toby went in to give his cup of tea, Morning, Mum. Here's your cup of tea. Well, I don't think I'm ready for a cup of tea. I didn't feel hungry last night, and, and, and I don't feel thirsty this morning. You know, Toby, I think I'm dying. No, Mum, don't be silly, said Toby. No, I'm an old, old lady. I've had my time. My fingers are stiff, my back aches, my whole body aches. It's, it's time for me to move on. But don't you worry, you'll be fine on your own. Just remember that without death there's no life. No, no. But I don't want you to die, Mum. I don't want you to die, Mother. Please don't die. Please don't die. Well, Toby began to cry, and he ran from the house. And he ran down the lane and onto the beach, and ran across the stones that he loved so well. And he ran and he ran until his throat burnt, until he could run no more. He wiped his eyes and noticed in front of him a figure coming towards him. The figure was carrying a long walking stick and was wearing a dark cloak with a hood pulled over his face. As Toby rubbed his eyes and the figure got closer, he realised that the tall walking stick was in fact a scythe and that the person wearing the hood and the cloak was an old, old man with deep sunken eyes. I'm looking for the Jones place. That, that's, that's my name. I know who you are. You're old man death. And you're coming to take my mother. You're not taking my mother. No, you're not. And with that, Toby knocked the scythe from old man death and jumped onto his back. Well, old man death was strong and he fought hard. But Toby, he held on tightly and wrestled and wrestled and wrestled. And the more he wrestled, the smaller death became. As he wrestled and wrestled and wrestled, death began to get smaller and smaller until he was the same size as Toby. And he wrestled and wrestled and wrestled some more until he was the size of a small child. And he wrestled and wrestled until he was the size of a small baby. And then it wrestled and wrestled and wrestled until he had death in his hands. 
What am I gonna do? What am I gonna do? Love you! Love you! What am I gonna do? Oh, I can't put him under a rock, because the rock might wash away with the tide, and, and then he'll come back. And, and what am I gonna do? Toby looked around, and he noticed a shell, a nutshell, on the beach. Well, he wrestled with his fingers some more and made death even smaller until he had him in one hand. He bent down and picked up the nutshell and saw that it had been hollowed out. And so he pushed old man death into the nutshell. He looked around and found a twig. He took the twig and put the twig in the hole so that the nutshell was sealed tight. And he then leaned back and with all his strength threw that nutshell over the water and into the ocean. He watched it bobbing there in the sunlight for a while and then walked home. Well, by the time he got home and opened the door, he saw his mother in the kitchen boiling water. Mother, I, th I thought you said that you were dying. Well, you wouldn't believe it, but the strangest thing happened. A little while ago, a breeze seemed to come through the house and, and through my bones, and I, well, I haven't felt this good in many a time. I'm, I'm making us some breakfast. A late breakfast, albeit, but I'm making us breakfast. Why don't you go and get some vegetables from the garden? And so Toby went outside, and he pulled up some leeks, and he pulled up some potatoes, and took them into the house. Well, Toby's mother got out the paring knife and began to try and cut the vegetables. But the knife just whoosh, slid off the leeks. Whoosh. She tried cutting them. They wouldn't cut. What's going on? It's like they're frozen, but there was no frost. Well, go and get some eggs, she said. So Toby went out to the chicken coop and got some eggs and brought them back into the house, handed them to his mother, and she took them and knocked them on the side of the pan. They wouldn't break. What is going on? I can't break the eggs. I can't cut the food. Go and get me one of the chickens. The one that laid these eggs. So Toby went out back into the chicken coop. And he brought back a chicken. He had it tucked under his arm. And he took the chicken's head in his hand. And he wrung its neck. But the strange thing that happened was that the chicken's neck unwrung itself. Whoop. Well, Toby took that chicken's head in his hand again and wrung its neck. It unwrung itself. He did it again. He went inside the house. Mother, mother, I, I, I can't kill this chicken. Every time I wring its neck, it unrings itself. Oh, Toby, don't be so silly. Give me that chicken. She took the chicken and she got out the carving knife. She cut the head off the chicken. It bounced onto the floor. Bounced back up and stuck itself back on. Oh, this is strange, she said. She took the knife again. Well, Toby's mother didn't want to chase the chicken around the kitchen any more than she already had, and so she gave Toby some money and told him to go up to the butcher's store. So off he went, and on his way he saw people talking in the street, waving their hands in the air. When he got to the butcher's store, he threw his money on the counter and said, I'll have a couple of chops, please. I don't think so, lad. There's the money. No, you're not having chops today. Neither's the mayor, nor's the baker. 
And nor's the candlestick maker, to think of it. No, no one's having any chops today. But, but why not? Well, it's odd. I can't seem to kill the livestock. You know, that's strange, said Toby, because I tried wringing a chicken's neck this morning, and I, I couldn't wring it, and my mother, she tried to cut the chicken's head off, and it kept, kept coming back on again. Well, you tried one chicken, I tried a dozen, and nothing seems to die. It's like nothing will die. Death won't come to anything. It's doing my business no end of trouble. Uh-oh, said Toby. He picked his money back up off the counter and ran back down the lane to his house. Mother, mother, I've done a terrible thing. What is it that you've done? Well, this morning when I ran out onto the beach, I, 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 I ran into old man death and, well, to make a long story short, I kind of wrestled with him, put him in a nutshell and threw him out to sea. And now nothing can be killed. Oh, Toby, that was a silly thing to do. You you know, I told you this morning, without death there can be no life. You've got to go and find old man death and let him out of that nutshell. So Toby ran as fast as he could back down onto the beach. And he found the old scythe laying there on the stones. And he knew that that was the place where he wrestled. And he looked around in the ocean, sunlight gleaming off the waves. And he looked and he looked and he looked. But he couldn't see a nut bobbing in the water. He walked up and down the beach and then gave up. His head hung down. Oh, what have I done, said Toby. What have I done? He opened his eyes and saw right at his feet where the waves were lapping a nutshell with a stick sticking out of it. Oh, oh. Toby bent down, picked it up and pulled out the stick. Are you still in there? Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And so Toby very carefully helped Old Man Death back out of the nutshell, and he put him carefully on the ground and went to get the scythe. Old Man Death grew bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. I I I'm sorry for what I did. Mm, you should be. What have you learnt today, if anything? said Old Man Death. Um... I've learned that without death there can be no life. Hmm. Well, at least you didn't squash me or anything like that. You only put me in a nutshell. Now hand me my scythe. Toby handed the scythe to old man death. Well, I was going to collect your mother today. But you've learned a good lesson. I'll give her a few more years yet. And so death turned around and walked back along the beach from where he'd come. And it's true, death didn't return for Toby's mother for many, many years. Rumour has it that she lived to be 101, and she was very happy to die. she had so many great years. And Toby, well, he didn't see old man death when he came to collect his mother. But he knew that without death, there would be no life. Thank you. 
Death in a Nut, a story told for you by Simon Brooks. There's something about a tale like that that leaves you a little bit older and wiser by the end of it. Perhaps that's some of the power found in these old stories that Simon Brooks was talking about. What's the most powerful part of that tale for you? It may be worth talking about with the people that you love. And up next, we're going to hear from Barbara Schutzgruber, a story called The Bride. Now, she happens to be not only a fantastic storyteller, Barbara Schutzgruber, but also a very talented weaver. And when asked what she does for a living, she says, I'm a weaver. I weave words, fiber, reeds, and fabric to create stories, garments, and containers because stories are the threads that connect the world, and every weaving tells a story. This tale is from a collection of stories called Ladies' Night Out. This is the tale. It's called The Bride, here on The Appleseed. There was a young woman in our town did dwell. The skill of her weaving all the county did tell. A charming young farmer one day did arrive. He courted this fair maid to make her his bride. He courted her long and he said he'd be true. But she needed more, his honor to prove. When he asked her to marry, she quickly replied. She said then and there she would not be his bride. Well, if you will not marry straight home, I will go. His heart, it was broken, but she'd never know. He made a bold oath for all there to hear. Well, I'll wed the first woman I meet, don't you fear. (laughs) Oh, really? Oh, we will see about that. She ordered her sisters this man to delay. Her clothes and her ribbon, she laid them away. She put on the worst of the rags she could find. She looked like a scarecrow before and behind. The soot from the chimney she smeared crossed her face. She snarled her hair, she looked a disgrace. Then round to the road she quickly did run, and sat there and waited for her love to come. Well, soon the young farmer came along down the road. He saw a strange creature, was it human or toad? And as he drew closer the stench also grew. When he stopped beside it he asked what are, I mean, who are you? (laughs) I'm a woman, can't you tell? The answer it struck like a bolt from above. His oath he remembered, he thought of his love. He thought to himself, oh, I wish I were buried. But then he did ask her, uh, ma'am, are you married? <laughs> Why, no, I am not. Why? <laughs> the answer she gave caused the young man to sweat. He looked at the creature, first woman he met. He thought to himself, oh, how can this be? But then he did ask, ma'am, will you, mm, mm, oh boy, ma'am, will you, mm, mm, ma'am, will you marry me? Oh, <laughs> my handsome young man. Oh, oh yes, I will. Mm. This answer, it suited as well as the rest. It hung very heavy and hard on his breast. 
Oh, how can I bear for to make her my bride? But then he did ask her behind him to ride. So then she climbed up and behind him she got, and off down the road they went at a trot. She drooled on his shoulder and scratched at her fleas. He wished from this promise he could be set free. But he'd made a promise and he'd keep his word. By the time they got home, his parents had heard. They came down to greet their son and his bride. They stopped and they stared. But they stood by his side. They asked his old love to the wedding to come. Her sisters replied, Gosh, she wasn't home. They readied the house and invited the guests. And then came the time for the bride to get dressed. <laughs> Excuse me? You expect me to get into that water? Oh, I don't think so. And may I ask just what is wrong with what I have got on? I mean, this is my wedding. I like what I'm wearing. Let's go right now. So off to the church they slowly did go. Twas more like a funeral, the tears did flow. The priest stood in vestments as the bride took her place. A shocked look of disbelief was on his face. The exchange of vows brought a hush to all there. The bride wiped a tear, then her nose with her hair. And in a bold voice she loudly did say, To love and honor, but not to obey. Now after the wedding they sat down to eat. The bride with her hands clawed the cabbage and meat. She licked all the platters and spat on the floor. T'was many the guest who went straight for the door. And after the feasting the guest did depart. His wife, she got up and let out a fart. The young man just sat with his hand to his head. She picked up a candle and headed for bed. Now when you hear my shoe go clum, oh, you'll know I'm ready for my husband on my wedding night. By and by, the old shoe, it went clum on the floor. He got up and breathed deep, and walked to the door. He climbed into bed with his back to his bride. She tossed and she turned and she rolled side to side. And just why did you blow out the candle, huh? It is so dark in here, I cannot see a thing. I want you to light those candles now because I want to see exactly what sort of man I have taken to husband. And I want you to see exactly what sort of woman you've taken to wife. As he lit the candle, what a sight to behold! She was finer and fairer than pictures in gold. He greatly rejoiced to the end of his fears, for the lady he'd married he'd courted for years. They hugged and they kissed what a frolic they had, and both of their hearts were merry and glad. 
We'll raise up a toast to this husband and wife. With many a full glass, we'll wish them long life. The Bride, a story told for you by Barbara Schutzgruber. All of the elements of a Shakespearean drama with the disguises and strong-willed character. And, of course, an epic love story at the center of it all. And she packs it all into that seven minutes that go by as you listen to that tale. What a good ride. And our final story, The Barnyard Birds, is a story told for you by South Carolina storyteller Tim Lowry. Now, this is a story about a bunch of birds in a barnyard who have to figure out how to deal with a wildcat that's been sneaking into the barn. Here's the story, Tim Lowry with The Barnyard Birds, here on The Appleseed. All the birds in the barnyard were very, very excited. The duck, and the chicken, and the doves, the peacock, and the guinea. The guinea was hysterical. They were all talking about a wildcat that had been sneaking into the barnyard at night and gobbling up birds. The birds of the barnyard decided that someone was going to have to stay awake all night long and stand guard. And if the wildcat came, they'd have to make a lot of noise so everyone could fly up into the trees to safety. The duck said he could keep watch. He would stay awake all night long, and if the wildcat came, he would quack very loudly so everyone would know to fly away. All the other birds went sound asleep. And that night... The duck stood in the middle of the barnyard, and he kept careful watch. He looked up the road, and he looked down the road, but he didn't see a wildcat coming. The night grew later and later and later, and the duck got very sleepy. And before long, the duck was sound asleep. <coughs> Quack, 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 quack. He snored so loudly that he didn't even hear the wildcat come sneaking through the woods. The wildcat climbed right over the gate, and then all of a sudden, quack, 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 quack. the duck was dead. In the morning, everyone was so upset. Bark, 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 bark. Ooh, ooh, wow! And that guinea, still hysterical. The duck had been eaten in the middle of the night. The chicken said that she would stand guard. She had all kinds of little baby chicks that she kept her eyes on. She knew how to keep track of many different things all at the same time. And she wasn't going to let that wildcat come in without sounding an alarm. So that night when all the birds went to sleep, the chicken stood in the middle of the barnyard and she kept careful watch. She looked up the road. She looked down the road. But she didn't see a wildcat coming. It got very, very late, but the chicken didn't want to fall asleep. She remembered what happened to the duck. And so she decided to keep herself awake, she would sing songs. She was so busy singing, she didn't even hear the wild cat come sneaking through the woods. She didn't hear him climb right over the gate. All of a sudden, the chicken was dead. 
In the morning, all of the birds of the barnyard were so upset, the doves were saying, the peacock was shrieking, and the guinea, hysterical. The chicken, just like the duck, had been eaten right up. The doves said that they would watch for the wild cat. There were two doves, and two birds watching was better than one. They wouldn't let that wild cat in without sounding the alarm. So the other birds in the barnyard slept soundly, while the doves perched on a fence and watched. One dove looked down the road, and another dove looked up the road. And they watched, and they watched, and they watched, and the night grew later and later and later. (sighs) It gets very boring looking in the same direction all night long. And so the doves decided they would turn around and look in the opposite direction. And when the doves turned round, they caught sight of each other. They couldn't take their eyes off one another. They just sat there saying, ooh, ooh. They had fallen madly in love. They were so busy talking together, they didn't hear the wildcat come sneaking through the woods. He climbed right over the gate. And all of a sudden, the doves were dead. The next morning, the peacock was shrieking, and the guinea was still hysterical. Mm. What were they going to do? The peacock volunteered to keep watch. He was the biggest bird in the barnyard after all. So that night, while the guinea slept, the peacock stood in the middle of the barnyard. He looked up the road. And he looked down the road, and then he thought, maybe that wildcat is sneaking in from behind. So he turned around to look behind himself, and when he did, he caught sight of his fancy tail. He was so taken with that fancy tail, he couldn't do anything but stand there looking at it and saying, Wow! Wow! He was so busy bragging about his tail. He didn't even hear the wild cat come sneaking through the woods. It climbed right over the gate, and all of a sudden, the peacock was dead. The next morning, the guinea was standing there all by itself, hysterical. That night, the guinea fowl stayed awake. But as the night drug on, and the guinea waited for the wildcat. She started to get very, very sleepy. But she couldn't go to sleep. She remembered what had happened to the duck and the chicken and the doves and the peacock. The guinea thought she could tell jokes to keep herself awake. <laughs> she loved jokes so much, even though there was no one else there to hear, she would laugh at her own jokes. This is the joke that she told. What did one nose hole say to the other nose hole? Turn the lights on, and we might see a booger man. (laughs) She was so busy laughing at her own joke, she didn't hear the wild cat come sneaking through the woods. He climbed right over the gate, and all of a sudden, (laughs) the guinea was dead. Well, the next morning, there were no birds left in the barnyard, except for a turkey. The turkey always stood off by himself. But now, 
the turkey stood in the middle of the barnyard. And that night, the turkey did not snore, and he did not sing songs. He didn't talk to anyone. <laughs> there was no one else to talk to. He did not look at his fancy tail, and he did not tell jokes. The turkey didn't make any noise at all. In fact, he closed his eyes and he listened. When he was very quiet, he heard something crunching on the leaves in the woods. He heard something rattling the gate. And then the turkey sounded the alarm. And the farmer came running out with his big gun and bang! Shot the wild cat dead. And that was the end of that. That is the end of that story, The Barnyard Birds by Tim Lowry. And it's also the end of this hour of The Appleseed. We hope you'll join us for the next hour of the show, in which, of course, you'll hear more terrific stories from terrific storytellers. A pleasure today to bring you stories from Tim Lowry, The Barnyard Birds, and Barbara Schutzgruber with that story called The Bride, Simon Brooks with Death in a Nut, a conversation with Rod Gustafson about the film Shadowlands, an entry in the Radio Family Journal about the Sadie Hawkins dance and at the top of the hour The Bakery Imps by Steve Sandfield. It's always such a pleasure to have you with us. We hope you'll join us again on the next episode of The Appleseed. Thanks for joining us for an hour of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by The Appleseed. The show is a production of BYU Radio. We'll see you next time.